Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. December 23rd, 2012. It was six years ago today that Jim Melgar lost his life. He lived his life selflessly, always giving and never asking for anything in return. Jim was a father who loved his daughter unconditionally and the type of husband that most women dream of. He was known to be kind, loving, and patient, always leading with his heart. Jim was just weeks away from retirement when he was tragically taken from this world. So before we begin today's episode, I'd like for us all to take a brief moment of silence to remember the man that we've been and will continue to fight for, Jim Melgar. It's time to get back to work. The path to uncovering the truth in any wrongful conviction case is to focus on the details. Look for the things that the original investigators missed. Investigate the assumptions and separate reality from fiction. We put every detail of the state's case under a microscope and see if it can hold up to the scrutiny. In order to find the truth, from time to time, we have to bring in experts. People with the training, knowledge, and experience necessary to take us beyond the speculation. When I bring in an expert to help us with our investigations, I have two basic criteria. I only want to hear from experts with no preconceived thoughts on the case and no motivation to bend towards one side or the other, and I always seek out the best of the best. Jim Clementi is known to be one of the most talented criminal behavior analysts in the world. And that's why I asked him to profile Jim Melgar's murder. Clementi's assessment of the crime scene was that Jim was likely killed by someone whose motivation was not murder. This was likely a case of a home invasion gone terribly wrong. 
Once we had an expert profile completed, I decided our next step would be to put the microscope on Sandy. One of the major elements of the state's case, as explained by prosecutor Colleen Barnett, and subsequently the foreman of the jury who convicted Sandy, is that Sandy changed her story multiple times during her interrogation. Now, I've watched the interrogation videos over a dozen times, and I have an entire legal pad filled with notes from these interviews, and I just couldn't see it. I didn't see any indicators of deception, and certainly didn't hear her changing her story. So I thought, maybe I'm too close. Maybe this is just confirmation bias rearing its ugly head. I know every element of this crime scene, and I'm deeply vested into the investigation. And that is why I reached out to James R. Fitzgerald, the man known by most as Jim Fitzgerald or Fitz. Jim knew nothing about the case when I got in touch with him, which was exactly what I was hoping for. I didn't give him any outside information other than the fact that Sandy had been diagnosed with lupus and epilepsy. As you'll hear throughout this interview, Fitz did a little bit of online research on the case to answer a few questions he had, and that's it. He's never listened to our podcast, he's never read any of the case documents, and he's never seen any of the television shows about Sandy's case. I was asking him to perform one single task, analyze Sandy's police interrogations, and tell me what he sees and hears. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Let me begin by giving you a little background on Jim. James R. Fitzgerald began his career in law enforcement in 1976, where he was hired by the Ben Salem Police Department. He spent 11 years working as a cop before he was recruited to the FBI in 1987. After successfully completing his academy training at Quantico, Fitzgerald was assigned to the Joint Bank Robbery Task Force in New York City. Then, in 1995, he was promoted to supervisory special agent, and transferred into what would later become the Behavioral Analysis Unit as a profiler. Fitz was, and is, an extremely talented profiler specializing in language. His superiors took note of this, and shortly after his promotion, he was assigned to the Unabom Task Force. There, Jim put his skills to work analyzing the writings of the so-called Unabomber. It was his work in what's now known as forensic linguistics that ultimately led to the capture and conviction of Ted Kaczynski putting an end to his decades-long reign of terror. I sent Sandy's interrogation videos to Fitz in late November. He spent the last several weeks reviewing them word by word. And today, he's here to report what he found. So Fitz, can we start off by having you kind of explain to our audience what forensic linguistics is? I know that it's not necessarily really 
important in the analysis of this particular case, but it's just a fascinating field, and you're kind of known as the father of forensic linguistics in the industry. So can you kind of give us kind of a brief explainer as to what you do or what forensic linguistics is? Well, certainly, Bob. And uh, it really comes down to the fact that uh, the science of linguistics has to do with the scientific analysis of language. And it's been around for, you know, hundreds of years formally and even informally back to the ancient Greeks and all who studied different people's languages and dialect teachers, whatever. And there's all kinds of linguistics, sociolinguistics, which is my specialty, how language is used in society. And I only deal with English language. There are, of course, other sociolinguists in other countries that deal with their languages. Maybe some who are fluent in multiple languages can work across languages. Others, you know, in, uh, you know, look at historical linguistics, sort of the history of some languages. Other into you, uh, computational linguistics and how we can work through corpus uh, and, and uh, analysis of different type things. So my area is, uh, is language in society, determining how would age factors determine language usages, uh, gender perhaps, educational level, regional factors, which uh, all develop, you know, dialects and, and accents and even a person's idiolect. If anyone's watched Manhunt Unabomber, they know that's a key linguistic term that Fitz sort of learns about there, and we all speak with idiolects. I'm born and raised in Philly, and if people listen really close, they, uh, they may pick up a few uh, Philly regionalisms from me. So that's kind of the basic concept of linguistics, specifically sociolinguistics. Throw in the word forensic in front of any science, and of course, uh, by Latin, it means arguing the law, but it's certainly in common traditional definition, certainly in English, it's using that science, in this case, linguistics, in the courts, in investigations, in civil matters, in, in determining anonymous authors, anything like that. That's where forensic linguistics come in. Uh, I was not a linguist at the time of the Unabom case in the mid-90s, and I, I, I knew the word, but I don't think forensic linguistics had even been coined yet, or if it was, I was unaware of it. But uh, I just started using basic language uh, interest and skills and knowledge that I had at the time. And, you know, looking at the manifesto and other Unabom writings, eventually Kaczynski came up. And uh, as uh, most of your listeners know, as well as you, Bob, the rest is sort of history after that. And uh, I don't consider myself the father of forensic linguistics in the FBI. Perhaps I could uh, have some sort of a term like that. And certainly in the criminal court system in the U.S., but there are some other academics uh, of whom I am familiar that, that certainly did some work in, uh, in forensic linguistics uh, around the same time as me. And we kind of came, it all came to a head at kind of the same time. And uh, it's been progressing ever since, not only in the U.S., but in other countries as well. Okay. And so real briefly, too, your, your involvement uh, with the Unibom case is quite notorious. It's been written about in books. In in fact, it's been detailed in your own book, right? You you wrote, and I, I've read all three of them, The Journey to the Center of the Mind, um, the last of which came out uh, just last year in 2017. Uh, and then, of course, as you mentioned last year in the Manhunt Unabomber series, you came into that case when it, was, it had been going on for years without any real leads, right? That's right. Uh, I came in right about the same time the manifesto was received at the New York Times, I, I think within a week or so of that. And they, uh, the people at the UTF, who had been together for several years, but of course the case itself had been worked by various agencies and then the FBI by the early 80s, but going back 17 years. So I'm brought in at the 17 plus year point, And I said, all right, guys, I'm here for 30 days. That was the original request for me to go from my home base of Quantico, Virginia, 
the FBI Academy, where the profiling unit was located, out to San Francisco, where the Unabomb Task Force was located. So 30 days later, they kind of liked the work I was doing there. I was finding things in the manifesto. And so the Unabomber's article, and remember, he never called it a manifesto. The media gave it that name, and everybody picked up on it since then. That came into the uh, New York Times around June of 95, and a profiler was requested to go out there. I was brand new. I was kind of asked to go in the FBI. When you're asked to do something, it means you're kind of being ordered to do something. Right. Went out there, and uh, uh, even on the way out, I found something in the second letter the Unabom wrote in 1985, which was displayed, if you will, in the miniseries, the dad at his eye on the left-hand column of the letter to Dr. McConnell at the University of Michigan. No one had ever seen that before, and we weren't sure if it was a secret message or what it meant from the Unabomber, but the bosses out there really liked how I sort of took control of the uh, of the various documents uh, involved in this case, and they said, you know, Fitz, you're in charge of them, and that's kind of what I did, and, and we worked up to the September publication of the manifesto in the Washington Post, which is what the Unabomber wanted, New York Times or Washington Post. And we were hoping to get some calls back from that. It took a while. A bunch of calls came in, none of them of anything of solid evidentiary value. So yeah, in February of, uh, of 96, uh, a lawyer calls the FBI. He's representing David Kaczynski, the guy who read the manifesto and said, gee, I think my brother wrote this. Next thing you know, David and his mother are giving known writings of Ted Kaczynski to the Unabom Task Force. I get brought back in after going back to Quantico for a few months. And uh, I tell them, I look at one of these documents from a guy named Ted Kaczynski and say, and I told them, we've got our man. This is the guy. And they said, well, you're coming back out to San Francisco, Fitz. And the next six weeks were the busiest of my professional life. Uh, we put the search warrant together using language for the first time ever in the U.S. criminal courts. And uh, that created a search warrant. The judge signed off on it. We got in the door of the Unabomber's cabin. And the rest, uh, you know, is certainly history. So it's your experience like that, and there were many, many other cases, which is why we reached out to you, because one of the still unanswered questions we have in the case we're currently investigating, the murder of Jim Melgar, is his wife, Sandra Melgar's police interrogation. And it happened in two segments. There was about an hour interview, and then she went and talked to a polygraph examiner for about an hour. And then came back in for another hour of what I would consider to be actual interrogation at that point. And, you know, she, she doesn't make any outwardly incriminating statements there. Um, I don't know that she, she hurts or helps her case one way or another, but I wanted to have someone that is, is trained to observe and analyze interviews like this and in language to take a, a, a good look and listen to it and see if there's any information leaking out there or, or anything that you can get out of that interview. So were you able to, to go ahead and analyze these two interviews? Yes, I was, Bob. And I, I spent some time uh, looking at both of them, you know, stopping and starting, going back and replaying a few parts and double check some things and obviously took some copious notes about the whole uh, matter. And uh, and yeah, just for the record, not only am I trained in, you know, forensic linguistics, I have a master's degree in linguistics, but I've also received training in statement analysis. And that's more what uh, sort of hat I was wearing while undertaking this particular analysis. We weren't trying to determine who's saying these words or you know the motivation behind them necessarily. She was answering questions by the police, and it was my, uh, you know, my goal in my appraisal of what was being said there and during this uh, discourse engagement between her and the one or two officers at any given time 
was uh, what in fact was truthful, what not truthful, what was being omitted, what was being volunteered, and seeing what any of it made any sense. So not as much forensic linguistics as statement analysis, and uh, within that, trying to determine indicators of truthfulness or non-truthfulness in an attempt to determine who's just saying what to whom. So um, that was my goal in undertaking the review of these uh, this this two-hour interview and see where it would take us. Uh, and, uh, and that's what I'd be glad to talk with you about now. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay. So I guess before we get into kind of your overall opinion on the interview, I'm sure you have, have notes set up where certain points caught your attention. So I guess I'll, I'll just kind of let you lead us to things that you found important about the interview, and we can discuss those as we go along. Yeah. And, um, uh... Like I said, I've conducted these types of interviews, too, both as a police officer and later an FBI agent, sometimes under two hours, sometimes longer than two hours, and trying to get the truth out of someone. And uh, I think on the whole, I'll give some praise to the detectives. They didn't browbeat her. Uh, they didn't slam their fist. There really wasn't a good cop, bad cop scenario. You could argue a little bit there at the end at some points. But I think on the whole, you know, they did the best job they could in trying to undertake this interview and find the facts of it. Now, if you're a proponent of Sandra uh, or the police, you may think, you know, they push some buttons or try to that they shouldn't have, but, you know, legally and constitutionally, you know, they're protected uh, in doing these type things. There are a few times that she, um, she asked for a lawyer or, or she thinks she needs a lawyer. And if anyone who knows the law would know is that uh, sometimes right then the, the interview has to stop or anything, anything discussed after that fact would not be uh, admissible in court. So I'm not sure if that ever came up in the trial itself. But then, of course, she doesn't really admit to anything as the interview goes on. So, um, no, in, in terms of her demeanor for having just lost her husband, and as I think her daughter stated, you know, she was, you know, a wife at one moment, shortly thereafter a widow after that, and shortly thereafter a suspect in her husband's death. So she had a lot she was dealing with, you know, that first 12, 24 hours after this whole incident occurred. Uh, I thought she handled herself relatively well uh, in the interview. I did not see any overt indications of lying. I did not see her, you know, changing her story around in any significant sense. I didn't see any body language changes where she's uh, necessarily, you know, holding her arms across her chest uh, for an extended period of time. There were sometimes she crossed her arms, which doesn't mean a person is lying, but it means they're defensive, perhaps about certain parts of the discussion and where it's going. So, um, but as far as the interview itself, 
it seems that she had her story, and, and we can argue whether it's truthful or less than truthful in parts of it. She seemed to have the story down pretty well of what happened. And it, it is convenient, one could argue, that she happened to pass out or, or had some kind of a seizure at the exact moment her husband is being murdered. And the police, you know, as they should want to do, is bring that exact issue up to her and try to get her to explain that. Uh, and she did to the best of her ability. And she apparently does have a history of seizures, uh, which can be accompanied by memory loss. In addition to that, of course, we know in terms of the physical evidence goes, she was tied up and there was some kind of an injury to her head indicating either someone hit her or someone or somehow she fell on the floor and hurt herself. I'm not sure exactly what them, any medical reports may have suggested regarding that head injury. Uh, I'd have to look more into that. And perhaps, Bob, you even know that. But that's just something she was at least consistent with throughout the interview itself. And and the police really didn't, uh, there wasn't much they came up with, which was too much challenged the veracity of what she was saying. They certainly were asking questions. They were certainly having her repeat what she told them from you know the first part of the interview to the second part of the interview. But on the whole, to her credit, either she's really a good liar and kept her facts you know, straight through most of it, or that's, in fact, what really happened. And, uh, and she told it to the best of her memory. So there was no one, uh, in terms of an overall view of her interview by the police, there's no uh, aha moment or that's when she is lying about this, that's when she's lying about this, or some other feature. It looked like, she, to me, she was relatively consistent throughout. Uh, including the questions she could not answer because of her alleged memory loss and or injury, which occurred as a result of either a seizure of some sort or being hit on the head. So in terms of that goes, uh, that part of the interview goes, there is not that one smoking gun that, in fact, I would say, here's where she's lying, here's where she's telling the truth. It seems to me she was consistent throughout in terms of what she said. Did you pick up anything or what were, what were your feelings on maybe her emotional response being in the situation you've been in where she's you know about four hours past when she found her husband murdered? Yeah, I thought she was relatively in control of her emotions. But the problem is, in any situation like this, without a baseline of knowing uh, an individual and how they handle trauma, how they handle tragedy, how they handle emotional situations that are thrust upon them or they they happen upon whatever the situation is. I don't know. Is she the type of person that cries, you know, if she's watching a movie and, a, and a, you know, a, someone steps on a bug by accident or something? Hmm. Or is she the person who is very stoic and, and, and in control of her emotions and never gets upset? So to only have this slice of her time during this interview, it doesn't tell me a whole lot in terms of what should her emotions be. And I, I learned this years ago as a police officer, later as a FBI agent and profiler, listening to 911 calls or, or being the first responder to a scene. And there's the husband reporting the death of his wife, the wife reporting a death of, of her husband. And some of them are just balls of uncontrolled emotion on the floor while telling you this story. And on occasion, I found out 
they were lying and they were actually involved in the murder. There are others who are straight laced and is a, oh my God, yeah, my husband, my, my husband's in here. Please come in. He's not breathing. And he said, boy, why isn't she more upset? Why isn't she more concerned? And it turns out she had nothing to do with his death. That's just how she handles these types of situations or, or a person does. So I'm hesitant to ascribe too much here to Sandra's relatively calm demeanor, certainly in the beginning portions of the, uh, of the interview. I do note at the very end, I think the last entire 10 minutes, when I was marking the, the time stamp there, her head is uh, in her hand. She's not looking up at all for 10 straight minutes. And, um, you know, at that point, you know, the emotionality was clearly kicking in. Was it because she realizes her husband of 32 years, her partner of even longer than that, is now gone forever? Or on top of that, is it that she's also realizes she's kind of a suspect, a likely suspect in his murder. So uh, she's definitely upset in those last 10 minutes. And, uh, and and certainly she's doing, there's some more verbal, I should say nonverbal, you know, body English, if you will, that's taking place leading up to that. So uh, Sandra is definitely realizing the seriousness of this matter in the last 15 to 20 minutes of her interview with the police. With the last 10 minutes, like I said, her basically just covering uh, her eyes and her head and her hands and not engaging at all with the officers, which again, some could indicate as a sign of guilt. Others could indicate as just someone who was completely lost in the moment. Her love of her life is now dead and it could be looked at in either one of those ways. And the only way to truly evaluate this would be to have some other traumatic moment from her life, <laughs> have it conveniently recorded for us to right. look at. And let's see how she reacts there. But this one snippet, this one sort of snapshot of her life, even over two hours or so, is uh, I, I can't lock enough into it to say, aha, this means she's guilty. Aha, this means she's innocent. It's just without that baseline, like I said, of prior behavior uh, in these type situations, it's tough to render an opinion about that. But obviously, the questions were getting tougher to her at the end, too, uh, in terms of you know how she got tied up. And that the fact that her husband suffered a lot and that, you know, they're using terms like staging the crime scene, which she at least acted like she had never heard of that term before. And not many non-law enforcement people are familiar with staging a crime scene, what exactly that means, the term itself. So coincidentally or not, she's getting some tougher questions asked to her or at least comments directed at her. And that's when she sort of went into her uh, sort of turtle shell mode there. but again, that could be something normal on her part, or it could be something contrived just to say, you know what, you know, <laughs> the less uh, the less emotions I show now or the less picture I give these detectives may be better for me. And you know what, quite frankly, innocent or guilty uh, of, of the crime. And that's just how she chose to uh, handle those last 10 to 15 minutes. You know, one thing that I noticed based on being a student of trying to learn how to do these, these types of statement uh, analysis was at the end when you know when they, when they start really prodding her and kind of they're they're mimicking Jim her husband calling out for help and she seems to, she finally you know she's been described to me by everybody I've talked to her as being extremely calm patient very soft spoken and when, so for her when she seems to get angry then and says you know what I'm done you're just torturing me I'm out of here I remember one thing that Jim Clementi had told me once when he was helping kind of teach me some of this is that you can only accuse an innocent person of a crime they didn't commit so long before they're going to get pissed. 
as opposed to where in some some occasions, at least to my understanding, you know, a guilty person might put up with that for a little bit longer. Did you get any read one way or another out of that, or is it just kind of just roll the dice? Well, and again, I mean, I'm, I'm not disagreeing with Jim Clemente. I mean, he's right about that. You know, uh, I, I've been across the table from people I was pretty sure were innocent of a particular crime, but I still had to push their buttons a little bit to kind of convince myself. And before long, people get, they will get upset and they will get, they will push back at you and say, look, you know, uh, I'm not the guy you're looking for. Ask me all the questions you want. And they try to be very pragmatic and very realistic. And they don't give any sort of uh, soft answers or, well, this could have happened or that could have. And to her credit, I kind of see her, uh, Sandra, coming across the same way here in that that's when she kind of realizes, you know, she may have some kind of a penalty come against her, including the death penalty. And I like to, I mean, I, I think it was a good technique at the end, near the end, when the detectives ask her, you know, what should happen to, uh, what should happen to uh, the person who killed your husband and, you know, started off, well, you know, go to prison and then probably even get the death penalty. Not too many times do you hear a guilty person willing to sort of suggest they get the death penalty for themselves and, uh, and near the end of the interview and kind of pushed, that's how she, uh, she responded. So, um, and uh, yeah, and I'm looking at my notes here as we go through. The only thing that I guess she got a little bit tripped up on and she had to kind of go back and sort of reevaluate what happened was when it turns out the, the police seemingly saw some legitimate wraparound bruising on her arms, one or, or both arms. I, I forget, I have plural arms here. And at first she couldn't explain that, but then she happened to remember, you know, minutes later, that at some point she slipped getting out of the jacuzzi to go to the bathroom and her husband grabbed her by the arm to make sure she didn't fall. So yeah, exactly what happened there, how that happened. Now, of course, if someone's being stabbed, um, they may also grab an arm and trying to get that person to stop stabbing them. So there's a logical reason why someone would have wraparound bruising on their arms like Sandra apparently did and they were visible hours after, you know, she was found, the murder and what have you. So uh, to me, that's about, to go back to what I was saying a little bit earlier, that may be about the only one inconsistency that she explained it, but she kind of forgot to tell about slipping in the jacuzzi beforehand. But once the wraparound bruising was brought up by the police, that's something she had to describe. And quite frankly, she did so adequately. And uh, it's, it's a very uh, plausible explanation to how those particular wounds got on on one or both arms. So, uh, but no, on the whole, I think she was consistent and she reacted accordingly when she was accused of things. She didn't just walk out of the room, uh, you know, slamming things down, whether she could have done that or not. But, uh, you know, she did kind of ask for a lawyer early on. I may need one. There's nothing wrong with that. They kept going. And, you know, some other questions came up here and there, you know, about her seizures and how they happen and, and you know, a bathrobe, once she had it on, once she didn't relatively consistent in that regard. And again, no one aha moment, as I suggested before, that the police really uh, could lock into and quite frankly use against her at any time uh, in, in trial, I would think. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. They weren't really able to use anything at trial other than, you know, I think the prosecution claimed that she changed her story because, you know, at the beginning of the interview, she says, I don't know, I think he was out of the tub for five minutes. And then they keep asking her, asking her, and she's like, I don't know, five, maybe 10 minutes, maybe 15 minutes later. And they kind of use that as an example of her changing her story. But it, it, that wasn't significant to me. I think she's trying to remember and wasn't looking at a, at a watch, obviously, when she was in the tub, if she was in the tub and that happened. But one thing, if I can tap into your abilities as, as, a, as a behavior analyst and a, and a profiler, so there, there's some things that, and, and one good example is the what you just gave about the bruise on her arm. So she has a bruise, which they're calling a wraparound bruise, but it's on the inside of the bicep on her left arm. And of course, you didn't know, you didn't see the photos to know that. But when she's describing it and she talks about, you know, slipping in the tub or whatever and Jim grabbing her, she makes clear that it was, it, they talk about, she says, no, it was the right arm. So the arm she says that, that he grabbed her on was not the arm that had the bruise and she also made sure to point out that no he didn't grab me hard enough to hurt me or anything like that and that that is one consistent theme is one of the things that convinced me to take this case or at least look into it further was the prosecution's theory is that she did this elaborate staging of the crime scene like criminal mastermind staging to make it look like there was a home invasion when she was the actual killer but then when she goes into her interrogation she never helps herself through the entire thing. You know, when they say, was the garage door open? Uh, I don't think so. No, I, we don't leave it open. Was the back door unlocked? I don't know. I didn't go out the back door. Just one thing after another, you know, because the only reason she became a suspect to begin with was because she said, I don't remember. If she just said, I saw, you know, a, you know, a bushy haired stranger in the house, they would have been looking somewhere else. Can, can you talk a little bit or, or do you have any opinions on the congruency of trying to tie together an elaborate staging, criminally sophisticated staging of a crime scene with an interview where in every chance where she has an opportunity to provide any maybe forensic countermeasures or indicate that someone else committed this crime, she never once takes those opportunities. Well, the only time, Bob, she does take that opportunity is, and it's sort of a slight indirect one, but when they came back from the CVS, there was ostensibly a car following them for a while. I'm not sure how many people would pick up on a car following them. And I I believe it was dark out at this point in time. Uh, It was well after their dinner on the way home. I believe Jamie was driving, if I recall. Right. And then he would have been the one looking in the mirror and somehow picking up on a car following them, which, of course, according to Sandra, turned off. Uh, somewhere before they went into their uh, their neighborhood per se. So, if there's any sort of a um, of a setup to this, like you said, elaborate staging of a crime scene, so elaborate that it's made not to look elaborate uh, in, in terms of this criminal mastermind, uh, Sandra. You're right; she didn't really take advantage of it, except this almost in passing remark that there was a strange car following them. If she's going to use that car as maybe the people that followed them, say, hey, yeah, it followed us right down our street. Yeah, it went by us when we pulled into our driveway. But, hey, that would have really helped her story there. Unless she knows there's people with other uh, 
Well, actually, this may be a factor because I believe some of her neighbors had surveillance cameras, correct? Well, yeah, but the police were really over. They were lying, but they were overstating what they could see from those surveillance cameras. There was okay. one across the street that had their own driveway. And in the house behind theirs, there was one shining at their backyard that caught a little corner of the Melgar's backyard. Okay. Well, and you know, constitutionally, uh, police and agents are allowed to lie sure. in an interview to get someone to give information. Uh, it doesn't sound right when you hear it for the first time, but, uh, but it is, uh, uh, you know, allowed. And the suspect would then say, all right, well, then you got me coppers and, and confess and they can put the story together. Otherwise that's fine. Right. So, but maybe that's why if she was thinking her neighbors had surveillance cameras and didn't want to say, you know, the, the dark, uh, colored Buick, you know, followed us right onto our street. So conveniently, it turned off, you know, several blocks before that. But then how would they know, you know, where she lives? So uh, there are a lot of things that Sandra could have done to have bolstered her story when she didn't. You know, she could have even gone down and, and, you know, put some pry marks uh, on the door when nobody was around, even after the murder. She could have done it before the murder, quite frankly. And just to make it look like that's somehow how someone got in, uh, she could have, you know, busted a window out. I know the drawers were pulled out and it looked like, well, certainly items were disturbed. To me, it's not clear. Apparently, it was reported nothing was taken, but then later it came out things were taken. You know, what's the level of value of these items? And if this was a, um, you know, a home invasion, uh, a lot of work, a lot of high risk, especially in a neighborhood that is apparently low crime. And I mean, that whole section of the city, from what I understand, is relatively low crime, certainly to the type of crime such as a felony home invasion, burglary, robbery, which then turns into uh, a murder and arguably an attempted murder. I mean, uh, those types of things are, I've I've arrested people right after uh, home invasions in my earlier career, and I've investigated other ones and made arrests after the fact. And they're usually well planned out, and they're not just random. You're not just going into a house hoping you'll find something of value or a big screen TV or whatever. You want to know that there's something in there that you can steal. It's easy to carry and you can fence it right away and get cash for it. And if they were, if if the crime was the result of a home invasion, these guys were amateurs. They had maybe never done it before. But I can say this, I, I know we have nothing in that statement alone. The two hours over two separate interviews, you know, a few hours with like an hour in between or something, there's nothing at all in there that would say to me, She's the one that killed her husband. There are certainly questions that could be further asked. There are certainly evidence I'd want to further examine, uh, including the crime scene itself, her medical history, interviewing her doctors, neighbors, other people that know her, even the waitress and the people at the restaurant that night, and everything put in there, including at the CVS, anything we could pick up, and seeing what kind of pre-offense behavior Sandra may have engaged in, that would be one little bit of a clue that she, in fact, either participated in this homicide, you know, arguably hiring someone else to do it. I think that's pretty far down the list too. Or if she did it herself, you know, what else would be there that would suggest this is a possibility? I don't see anything at this point in time, but I also, I'm I'm not locked into a a strict, by definition, home invasion either. And so, uh, you know, there are some questions here, but again, from what I've seen of this trial, the case in the trial itself, I'm not sure as the evidence presented that I've seen, there was enough to convict. Before I let you go, Jim, 
I want to make sure, let everybody know, where can they, you, you have a website that has any information about your books or anything like that, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I do, I do, I give lectures around the country. I was in Denmark last week. I'll be in New Zealand in the spring. Well, our spring. Ah, their fall. So, yeah, it's www, of course, jamesrfitzgerald.com, jamesrfitzgerald.com. And, yeah, I have three books, A Journey to the Center of the Mind. You can get them through my website. I can send them out to sign copies directly. Certainly, Amazon.com has them. There are some bookstores. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I encourage any of your listeners to check that out, and they can hear the full detailed aspects of my early life, my police officer years, as well as certainly uh, my first 10 FBI years. And uh, Book 4 is coming out sometime in 2020, and I'm going to and my nearest resolution to start writing that. So I'll be on that before long. And that'll finish up my FBI career and, and my last 10 years in retirement, which are pretty exciting too, quite frankly. Some of the cases I've worked and some of the Hollywood stuff I was involved in. So I appreciate you asking about that, Bob. Yep. And thank you so much again, Jim, for all of your time. I know you're, you're very, very busy and I really appreciate you taking the time to do this for us. You're welcome, Bob. And, uh, and good luck with this case. And I'll be glad to hear where it goes. And maybe we can come back on and discuss some other factors down the line. That sounds great. Thanks so much, Jim. You take care, Bob. Thanks. Despite what the critics may say, our number one and only goal is to find the truth in every case that we investigate. And we do this by bringing in the world's best experts to give an unbiased analysis of every single element of the case. And that's what we've done here. So I want to ask something of the original prosecutor, Colleen Barnett, and even of members of the jury and specifically the jury foreman. What I'm asking of you is to listen to this and go back and listen again. When Sandy was tried for the murder of her husband, we didn't have all the facts. No one faults the jury and even to an extent the prosecutor for presenting the case and understanding it as was done last year at the trial. And what I'm asking for is to let go of any preconceived notions, let loose of your instinct to protect your opinions, and hear what's been presented here over the last several months objectively. The opinion you just heard, that Sandy did not change her story and showed no indications of deception during her police interrogation, is not my opinion. It's the opinion of one of the world's leading experts in forensic linguistics and statement analysis. We all misinterpret things from time to time. We're limited by our own knowledge and expertise. And that's why we bring in these experts. To figure out what's fact and what's fiction. And what we've done today, we're going to continue to do. We're going to put every element of the state's case under a microscope and see if it holds up. We're not doing this to be vindictive, and we're not doing it because we're insisting on freeing Sandy Melgar. We're doing it because it's the only way to find the truth. It's the only way to figure out if mistakes were in fact made. And that's the only way that we're ever going to be able to correct them. I'm pleased to announce to all of you right now that the Harris County District Attorney's Office has taken the first step towards figuring out what actually happened to Jim Melgar. They've agreed to meet with a new attorney on the case who's asking them to allow for new DNA testing. And that new attorney just happens to be the most successful post-conviction attorney in U.S. history. 
currently with 17 exonerations under her belt. And this new attorney representing Sandra Melgar is none other than Kathleen Zellner. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 6 logo was also created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to Patreon.com slash TruthAndJustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on the Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a 5-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. And for all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice.